Hi everybody and welcome back to Red Room. This is Jenny. I wanted to bring you all an episode in the lead up to Christmas just to say thank you to everybody who has tuned in over on Spotify over the last year. It's a year since I have started releasing on Spotify and I love being able to release over on Spotify and bring everybody who isn't on Patreon some Red Room content because you guys deserve it too, you know what I mean? So this episode is last year's Christmas special. I loved it. I really listened to it recently and I was like, this is actually a great episode. So uh, in this episode, we're going to cover a killer, a serial killer who was a Santa killer. He's known as the Santa killer. We're going to look at some strange Christmas traditions and then we're going to look at some folklore surrounding Christmas. So it's a nice little light episode in the lead up to Christmas. I hope everyone's doing well. I hope you've got all your Christmas shopping sorted. Um, If Christmas is not the time for you, I hope you have some nice plans and, you know, I hope that you can surround yourself with those you love either way. But I totally understand that Christmas is not the best time for everybody. So I hope that this can bring you a little bit of distraction if it's not and of course if you're looking for some extra content I am releasing all throughout Christmas we're going to have episodes this week next week I can't wait I love being able to give people podcasts over the Christmas break because as someone who consumes a lot of content it enrages me when I don't have my favorite YouTubes and podcasts to listen to obviously you know everyone deserves a break but I try bring content when I can If you're not familiar with Patreon, I release weekly over there. Patreon have recently changed their subscription service as well. So it's no longer uh, everybody gets charged at the start of the month. It is now just like Netflix or whatever the subscription service that you have where you get charged on the date that you sign up. So if you sign up on the 20th, 21st, 22nd, you won't get charged until January 21st, 22nd. So no worries about that money coming out of your account in January 1st. Obviously, we don't want that after a crazy Christmas. I also run a rewards plan. I believe I'm the only Irish Patreon that rewards my listeners for being members. So I give out prizes for three, six and now annual members. I got these amazing keychains made for annual members. I'm so excited to send them out. There's lots of new things coming for Red Room next year. It has been a great year for me personally and career wise. And next year I'm working on so, so, so much more. And as always, everyone on Patreon finds out about that first. So without further ado, I'll leave you with this episode. I hope you all enjoy it. I hope you all have an amazing Christmas and I'm sure I will talk to you all in the new year. So this week I wanted to do a little Christmas theme because why not? Now we're going to keep it, it's going to be kept dark. It's going to be kept in the red room world, in the room, shall we say. We're going to have a bit of true crime. We're going to have a bit of folklore a bit of Irish kind of mysticism and then finally we're going to go on to kind of some more like stranger the truth is stranger than fiction stuff um, on how some modern day Christmas practices were shaped by our capitalist overlords. So let's just get fucking into it. Let's get into these stories. No need for any shy talk from me to be honest. So first we're going to talk about a man called Bruce MacArthur who is known as the Santa Killer. Um, His story is gnarly, not so much Christmas themed, but he did work as a department store Santa Claus, which when you hear about his crimes does kind of make it a little bit creepier. You know, it's that whole thing of like murderers hiding in plain sight, I guess. So Bruce MacArthur committed the murder of eight men between 2010 and 2017, 
His targets were usually vulnerable, poor and lonely men who maybe had just come out, were experimenting with their sexuality or were new immigrants to Canada where he was from. As I said, they were all kind of taking their first steps into explore their sexuality. And as I and since I mentioned that so many were new immigrants, a lot of these men had actually and unfortunately moved to a place where they thought they were safe to express their sexuality, which really just adds another layer of sinister, like another sinister layer to his plot to kill these men. In the late uh, 1970s, he basically became a sales rep um, and he traveled all around Ontario. So he was first working in retail and he was selling men's shoes, socks and underwear. He was really known as a lovely guy, someone with a smile always on his face. Everyone liked him. He was really well regarded. He married his wife Janice and they were together for 30 years. They seemed to be living in a pretty perfect family. Um, However, in the late 1990s, he came out as a gay man uh, and he left his family and moved to Toronto and he actually remained on good terms with his family like he was not you know his his wife was pretty forgiving they understood they're very understanding people so there was no real beef with his family or anything over his new sexuality however he did decide to move away um to a different city in 2003 and he at this point he was in his late 50s he received his first criminal conviction and it was for the assault of a man with an iron pipe and this happened 2 years prior He started a small landscaping business, so he moved away from retail, um, and he was kept pretty busy. He was pretty popular. His clients always really liked him. He was said to be really close to the children, especially, kind of like a grandfatherly figure. Obviously, I think the parents would have known that he worked as Santa, so he kind of had that like almost immediate trust with the family. He also um, was so busy that he was actually able to to hire some kind of casual workers. His approach to murder was methodical, very thought out. He would kill them all in the same way, all of these men. They would die by ligature strangulation, usually using a rope and a metal bar to tighten the ligature. This was repeated on most of his the victims' bodies. After he had killed the victims, he would pose them and photograph them sometimes on his 19th floor apartment or in his red Dodge caravan. One victim, for example, was posed wearing a fur coat uh, with a cigar in his mouth. Sometimes he would shave their beards, shave their heads, have their eyes opened and closed. Some would be photographed with the ligature still in place around their neck. Um, He would also take photos, close-up photos of their genitals. He stored these photos of his victims as digital files, almost so he could like relive it um, and kind of go back and probably, you know, have some sort of sexual gratification from looking at the photos. How he got rid of the bodies was another story, guys. So fucking creepy. Remember we said he worked as a landscape architect or a landscaper. So what he would do is he would dismember the victims and dispose their bodies, distributing among his clients' gardens. Fucking gross. So as with any messy ass serial killer, there's always one victim that ends up becoming their downfall. And for MacArthur, his victim was Andrew Kinsman. So Andrew disappeared on June 26, 2017. He was 49 years old. 
Um, however, he was different to the other victims. Andrew Kinsman, he was actually a really well-known and loved figure in Toronto's gay community. And he was actually the caretaker of his apartment building. So he was a very popular guy. He wasn't new. He wasn't a recent immigrant. He was a Canadian person um, who would have had people looking for him. And there were people looking for him. So he actually went missing following Toronto's gay pride parade. And it was quickly noted. People noticed that he was missing. It was reported to the police. And then within days, there was posters everywhere of his face, all over lampposts, Um and it was like the, the topic of discussion. Like people were like, where the fuck is Andrew? His friends and colleagues knew he was interested in true crime, which again adds this weird, sinister layer to it. And I was actually quite interested in this kind of story, but I couldn't find much more on it other than this one article. But they go on to say that basically a colleague of his at the Toronto People with AIDS Foundation said that Andrew had an occasional hookup with a man who, quote-unquote, was very into the psychology of serial killers and how they functioned. Interestingly, on his calendar, he had scrawled the name Bruce across it a few days, uh, like, on the calendar before he disappeared. So he obviously knew he was meeting Bruce. There was also, like, loads of digital files on Andrew's computer, all about John Wayne Gacy, who's a really famous serial killer, and a few other, like, missing persons um, files. It, and some people have actually speculated, like, was he doing his own research by meeting up with Bruce? Which sounds really fucking paranoid, but I don't know. It could be, like, it sounded like almost like he was a bit of a researcher himself, you know? He didn't seem like a stupid person, though, I will say that. Like, he seemed like a very well-respected, pretty smart dude. So I don't know if he's really going to be, like, doing his own investigation. But nevertheless, he did meet up with Bruce and unfortunately met his demise. So in September 2017, uh, MacArthur, Bruce MacArthur, the murderer, was actually under physical surveillance. So police had been tipped off about him. And CCTV footage actually showed one of the last places that... Andrew went was into MacArthur's red caravan and this is where he killed um, a lot of his victims. So they were investigating him uh, in 2017 and police actually ended up picking up a coffee cup that he threw out of his van and they were able to get a DNA sample of that. Um, A few months later, in November, he actually dumped the caravan, who knows if he was kind of suspect, um, and the police were able to seize it and get it forensically examined, which I find mad, like, that they're just able to do that behind your back without you knowing. Fucking crazy. But I guess they can if if your man has dumped it. Um, They ended up finding blood and semen connecting victims, kinsmen, and another victim, Salim Hassan, to the van. Uh, the evidence earned them a warrant then to covertly enter Arthur's home. So they were able to enter the fucking house without him even knowing. And in January then, forensic expert discovered photographs of Andrew Kinsman and Asen on Bruce's computer. And the photos were, as we described earlier, taken after both of the men had been killed. So the police at this point obviously know that they have a murder on their hands, that he is a serial killer at this point because they were able to connect him to at least two murders. And they were putting him under surveillance. I don't know why they didn't go in immediately, but I guess they did pretty soon after this. So the day after they found these photos, the police who were surveying him witnessed a young man 
on going in, driving up to MacArthur's house and entering into the apartment building. Um, and they obviously knew that like this guy has killed before, likely to kill again, and this could be a possible victim. So because there was a man who was like likely to be in like immediate danger, they were able to raid his apartment and they found the young man naked and handcuffed to a bed with a black bag over his head. He was arrested and charged with the murders and a deeper search of... So he was first, you know, charged with the murders of Andrew and Salim, who they knew they had physical, pretty much physical evidence of this from the, the photos, you know, and DNA that they had taken from his van. Um, but then they searched the house, obviously, after his arrest and they found files on each victim. So there's eight victims in total that they know of and there was souvenirs um, and then they went and after like what they had looked into his diaries and stuff they were able to find like some tips I think that they were like okay I think he's burying the bodies in his fucking clients houses and they went to one client's property and they found body parts from eight victims in planter pots how fucking creepy and disgusting. Karen Fraser, who was the homeowner, actually had a press conference and talked about how talented he was and that he was very fond of their children and he was like a grandfather, a best friend, a neighbour. He was like everything she ever wanted, like little did she fucking know. Something that's very interesting about this and hap- and it does pop up quite a lot because, you know, people don't just wake up one day and want to kill someone. You know, you don't just like, you know, of course, with this guy, you could make the argument. I'm trying to think into the psychology of him. He was obviously closeted gay for a very long time. And that would, I'm sure, build up some level of... I don't know, internalized homophobia or hatred of yourself. And a lot of the times, and something that I've noticed in crimes similar to this, it would usually be when the murderer themselves is still in the closet, so to speak, or not living as an openly gay man. It's unusual that like he came out to his family it was pretty accepted from his family, albeit he like moved away to start a new life. But like, it didn't sound like his children didn't disown him. His wife didn't become like super estranged. They were quite supportive of his decision. Maybe the wife kind of knew all along, who knows. But then he still was like taking out this like internalized homophobia on other people, really fucking crazy. But something that they did note in this article was that between 1975 and 1978, there was 14 men from Toronto's gay community that were murdered. And the, the even though the method of the killings varied, um, like there was some like that were kind of straight up beatings, there was was strangulation. Uh, police solved around half the cases, but the arrest remained cold. Interestingly, remember we spoke about how he became a salesperson traveling around. The murders stopped when MacArthur began traveling with work. So they were all concentrated in one part of Toronto until he became like this traveling kind of salesperson and then ended up going back to Toronto eventually. Uh, They had actually interviewed one of the detectives in the homicide section of the Toronto Police Department and he was like, I actually wouldn't be surprised if this guy could be linked to at least some, I mean, 14 um, between in three years. That's a huge amount. The Toronto Police were also like called out a lot because a lot of the guys who went missing from the um, gay scene in Toronto, if they said there wasn't like there was a lot of bias, they, it's like the police didn't really take it seriously enough, or they were like they didn't like think of it as an immediate threat. And then like little do they know there was this fucking like psychotic serial killer out there. And it's really strange, you know. I always think this like 
there has to be something to say about overt homophobia and it becoming this like self-hated thing because if it wasn't as big of a deal for people like if if he didn't have to there could, could be argued now I'm not saying this for sure but it could be argued that if there wasn't a society where like people weren't afraid to come out so to speak or like to live who like they actually are if that homophobia didn't exist, people wouldn't be like getting married, suppressing it for 30 years, having 30 years of built up internalized homophobia. And then what? They come out and they rage and become some serial killer. But then again, I think there's also like something to be said that like, as I said earlier, people don't just become serial killers. I do think that there's like a huge amount of research into it that like that lack of empathy, that psychopathic gene can be in you. Um, but there is a nature and nurture thing, you know, that way you'd wonder if like 30 years is a long ass time. Like that's pretty much it is my whole life um, minus two years. And thinking of like hating yourself for that long or being in a situation that wasn't true to yourself. Like could that make a, like some sort of switch flip in your head? And is he like taking out his frustrations on like maybe lost time on these other like unsuspecting victims? Or is he just taking out some sort of self-hatred on, you know, his life not being what he wanted it to be or being estranged from, not strange, but being removed from his family now and starting again? Or does he just not know how to interact sexually with men because for so long he suppressed it? I think overall, though, you have to look at this guy as most cases are like a mental health case, as in like he did have allegedly necrophilic tendencies. There was this whole thing of posing the bodies and getting sexual gratification from the pictures. But, you know, there you go. There's a Santa killer. There are some other Santa. There's a guy called the Santa Strangler, but he was mainly he didn't even work as a Santa. He just looked like Santa. Um, but we're going to get on to some other stories on Santa later on. And there's there's way more creepy shit that uh, surrounds Christmas, strangely. So now I want to go in and talk a bit about some strange Christmas traditions. There's lots. There are fucking loads. And really, when you look at it, it's because... As all holidays are, you know, there's no, it's no coincidence that we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December, the end of the like Roman calendar, so to speak. That's also would have been around the time of a winter harvest, the winter, the winter solstice obviously is on the 21st of December. You know, they all go back to pagan traditions. And when Christianity, I've spoken to my mom about this a lot because she is like a, a wealth of knowledge on all things theology, really. She's been studying it for years. You know, she was kind of saying to me, like, when Christianity came in and started to introduce or modify more so these older traditional holidays that we had. Of course, they're not going to be like, okay, we're getting rid of all your usual holidays and giving them new times a year. It was way easier to adapt them and kind of go, okay, well, you know, slowly, slowly, we're going to start introduce Christmas. And, you know, no longer are we celebrating the winter solstice or like some sort of winter harvest. We're actually going to be celebrating, you know, the birth of Jesus. But like, we're going to keep some, copy and paste some traditions. And that way, like people will more than likely keep some of them and um, one that always fascinated me and I remember my parents telling me about it when I was very young you know obviously we all know in Ireland we celebrate St Stephen's Day um, obviously known in the UK as Boxing Day but I feel like there's always some weird vibe when I hear an Irish person say Boxing Day I'm like guys do you not know where you're from <laughs> 
Stop being such a Brit. I always saw this symbolism of like birds around the day. And my parents told me of something called the Wren Day. And I never really thought about it much, but I wanted to look into it today. And oh my God, it's so interesting. And such a strange and old tradition that we seem to have kind of lost. So Wren Day, uh, or also known as Wren's Day, Day of the Wren, or the Hunt of the Wren, is an Irish celebration that's held on 26th of December. Traditionally, it consists of a hunting of a wren, obviously, which is the tiny little bird. I think it's one of the smallest birds, very cute little thing. Um, So they hunt it, they kill it, and put it on the top of a decorated pole. And crowds of mummers, or straw boys, will celebrate the wren by dressing up in masks, straw suits, colourful clothing, and parade through a town. They form musical bands and parade, or as I said, through their towns and villages, singing a specific song. And they're known as the Wren Boys. And I'm going to play for you the song now that they sing, just so you can kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. But children can be very cruel, you know. And we used to do a very cruel thing coming on towards Christmas. We used to go out with big novelty sticks out through the fields and kill a little bird called the Wren. Harmless little thing. And we put the corpse in the middle of a holly bush and we decorated with the ribbons and coloured papers and things like that. And then on the day after Christmas, on uh, St. Stephen's Day, we'd blacken our faces and dress up in women's clothes and all sorts of mad things and go around from door to door singing this song and collecting money. for the funeral. (laughs) And the song that we sang as we went around from door to door was called The Ran Song. Follow the run three miles or more at six o'clock in the morning. I have a little box on the me arm, on the me arm, on the me arm. I have a little box on the me arm, a penny or tokens that do it no harm. Mrs. Lancy's a very good woman, a very good woman, a very good woman. Mrs. Lancy's a very good woman, she gave us a penny to bury the run. Penny to bury the run, Mrs. Lancy. Up the long ladder and down the short rope to hell with King Billy and God bless the Pope. That doesn't do, we'll tear him in two and we'll sell him to hell with his red white and blue. So uh, you've probably heard a lot of symbolism in that song and we'll get onto it in a second. But I want to talk about kind of where the history of and the importance of the Wren comes from in Irish history, specifically in pagan history. So there's loads and kind of conflicting stories of where this importance of the Wren came from. But we'll talk about a couple of them. So it does predate Christmas um, and I think a lot of its origins are in Irish mythology where birds were kind of held with great prominence they were known as messengers between the afterlife or like the underworld and our world and the spirit as well they were known to they could bring omens as well good omens bad omens we all know like you know the symbolism behind the magpie so it's really not only specific to Irish mythology obviously but the wren being a 
local bird to Ireland, obviously they would be seen quite a lot and they would also be able to hear them. You can actually, if you can, you can Google their song and I Googled it because I was like, I don't know if I know what the fucking wren sounds like and it sounds very familiar, I have to say. There's also some Celtic myths surrounding the wren um, and it's kind of, again, a symbolic thing. So they would have considered the robin, the red breast, to represent the new year. And that the wren represented the old year. And I also used to see a lot of kind of imagery of like a robin redbreast on Christmas cards and specifically on Stephen's Day. Um, and apparently in Celtic mythology, it was a thing that they thought that the robin would kill the wren. And that was kind of almost symbolic for looking forward into the new year and the old year being done. The word uh, in Irish and any like Gwailgors, I'm so sorry if I mispronounce, I try my best with the old Gwailga. Um, the word is Draileen and it's derived from two words, uh, which means druid bird. And it's taught by some folklorists that the tradition stems from early Christian opposition to the druids. A story closer to Christianity is that Saint Stephen, who was one of the first martyrs, he was hiding from his enemies in a bush and was betrayed by a chattering wren with their kind of very well-known song. The wren, like St. Stephen then, on St. Stephen's Day, should be hunted down and stoned to death to symbolise his martyrdom to Jesus. Another legend, again, the wren kind of seeming almost like a little trickster. The legend holds that during the Viking raid of the 700s, Irish soldiers were betrayed by a wren when they were sneaking up on a Viking camp in the dead of night, a wren began to eat breadcrumbs left on the head of a drum and the rat-a-tat-tat of its beak woke up the drummer who sounded the alarm, woke up the camp and led to the defeat of Irish soldiers and continuing persecution of the wren. So again, kind of this symbolic thing of like killing the thing that betrayed you, but can kind of also mark as a day of remembrance for maybe fallen soldiers. We mentioned earlier about mummers and I always just didn't even, I've never heard of this before, but I kind of, they're very, they look very familiar. If you Google them, I'll pop up some pictures tomorrow of like mummers and it's not just an Irish tradition. So mummers are these kind of groups of amateur actors, traditionally an all male group who will basically put on these plays in towns and they would be covered like usually they're disguised they're in a disguise with a lot of straw they would paint their faces black it has since like there was there is a parade of mummers I think in Philadelphia and it's been like kind of questioned now people are saying like is this blackface is it culturally insensitive I don't really know enough about it to say whether it is or not but I could see how with today's perspective we would think that um so mummers would be the people who would be in the march of the wren and they would be singing the song that you heard before they'd often call up to your door um, and ask you and you can hear in the song they ask for like a penny to bury the wren and the mummers would go like the mummers to me what I can see them as anyway my interpretation is like they kept a lot of tradition alive as I said they're amateur actors they would bring like a lot of folklore to life and these were amateur people who would do in this context the march of the wren so they would march around your town have the wren tacked to a pole knock on your door and ask for a donation for the mum's fu- for the for the wren's funeral. Usually what they would do with the money is they would throw a party or a dance or some sort of celebration for the town um and they'd all chip in or sometimes that it would be given to a charity as well. That could also be a, a has also been documented. 
Interestingly, um, the Catholic Church throughout the 20th century really condemned mummers. And this is thought because they were they had a link to almost paganism. They were keeping a lot of folklore alive, a lot of non-Christian traditions alive. And as we know, they always like to shut down whatever the fuck they can that doesn't have a direct relation to Jesus. Around Ireland, the tradition of the Renboy Parade is not very active anymore. It comes originally, they think, from Dingle. And I think, as far as I know, it still happens there. Now, these days, we don't actually kill a wren. It's usually a fake wren on a pole. However, there is some out in somewhere in the Knoll, as far as I know, which is actually quite close to me. They also have mummers still there, and they actually are trying to, like, bring back the mummer in the Knoll. So if you're from the Knoll or if you're from Dingle and you've seen the wren boy procession, do let me know. Um, it's such a, a, an unusual and strange little tradition that we have here in Ireland, and I wish it came back. And I always wondered why we were so big on celebrating the 26th of December but that just shows it's another like part of one part being like pagan old pagan traditions and Celtic traditions coming forward and being celebrated nowadays but also you know the kind of spin that Christianity put on it it being known as Saint Stephen and that like that whole idea of the wren being this like mischievous kind of character like obviously obviously the wren allegedly was the reason that uh, Saint Stephen got caught again he betrayed the Irish soldiers and one thing to note is that the the day of the wren and the march of the wren and the mummers and the wren boys as they would be known were also known to like play tricks on you it was a day where you could have this tricksterism and we're going to get into something else in a second now but there are a lot of these kind of overlaps between trick or treating uh Samhain and other kind of pagan or ancient Celtic traditions that you see kind of coming forward. It's like you can't squash it, you know, that way you really can't squash it. So moving further afield, we will talk about Krampus. Fucking creepy ass tradition that is from central and eastern alpine folklore. So we're thinking kind of Germany and we're thinking kind of Austria, those kind of areas. So obviously we all think, well, I do anyway, I was always told like that, like a lot of our Christmas traditions come from Germanic traditions. Um, And when I think of like really good Christmas markets, I think of like Vienna or Germany, anywhere in like, especially in the Bavarian region of Germany, I'd love to go to one, I've never got over there. Um, But this kind of shit, I'm like, fuck, y'all are fucked up. (laughs) This is so creepy. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Krampus is a horned anthropomorphic figure who during the Christmas season scares children who have misbehaved. He assisted St. Nicholas and the pair would visit children on Krampus night. And St. Nicholas was said to reward well-behaved children with gifts like oranges and sweets and stuff like that, while badly behaved children would receive punishment from Krampus and they would be hit with birch rods. Yes, so fucking weird. So the etymology of it, uh, the word Krampen is German for claw and that's kind of thought to come from how he looks. He looks very much like what we would consider like the beast or the devil. Um, he is a malevolent counterpart to St. Nicholas, as I said. So instead of it being that like um, good and evil were separate, they actually worked together. They would, as I said, travel around and visit children working as a team. So December 5th was the night where they would visit and this was called Krampus night good kids got sweets Krampus would beat the naughty kids with sticks and some folklore has even said that he would bring bold children to the underworld so we're thinking like a classic old you're on the naughty list thing on December 6th then on Nicholas tag good kids who avoided Krampus would get presents and bad kids would wake up and instead of a present they would get a rod so it's kind of like that getting a like a bag of coal like did your parents tell you that you're going to get a bag of coal if you were on the naughty list um, and it all kind of symbolizes that good or bad behavior his how he looks so he is as I said a horned beast who has claws, often a very scary and like devil-like face. And he is covered in chains and bells and sheepskins. So this has been speculated to be a later addition by Christianity in attempt to quote-unquote bind the devil. Um, the Christians, again, really didn't like, uh, in the 20th century specifically, they really didn't like that like people were still looking at Krampus because um, it did have such like symbolic importance and like similarities to the devil so there's this whole thing of binding the devil um, but it also could be part of a lost pagan tradition they don't really know because it, it's so like because of where Krampus comes from there are so many variations of him in different parts of Europe so they can't really tie it down to it could just be something that's like completely lost um, over the hundreds of years so as I said the Christians they did try to ban the tradition of Krampus again they're ruining all of our fun for their stupid holiday. <laughs> um, after World War II, I find this interesting, specifically when you think of like Europe post-World War II, uh, interesting Krampus died almost. But in the 1950s, there was a resurgence in Austria specifically of the interest of folklore and tradition. So I kind of think that in, in the cultural context, it's interesting. Like, you know, 
obviously great shame uh, on Germany and Austria and that part of Europe. And, you know, it was torn apart. It was bombed. There was a Holocaust. It was like a very kind of going back to anything traditional. If when you look at what Hitler brought in, it was like going back to like German tradition values. Um, So that was obviously a bit of a sore spot after the Second World War. But as always, people always want to go back to their folklore and back to their traditions and to kind of revive it. Um, And that happened in the 1950s and 1960s. Modern day, how Krampus is kind of celebrated is with something called Krampuslauf, which means the Krampus run. And it's a bit of a scary parade, almost more for adults, it seems. So a lot of people will dress up as Krampus and kind of, it, it seems almost like one of those real life haunted house things, which is just so weird thinking of it as a Christmas tradition because it just seems so far from anything we think of when we think of uh, Christmas now, which is probably like super American. Um, But it goes back to pagan roots, actually, where parades of men would wander the streets, scaring off winter ghosts and they would dress as the as devil-like figures called Pershton and they were said to be evil mountain spirits that were said to cause harm in winter months so that's really interesting as well that like you see this a lot it's like Samhain you know um where Samhain was said like the veil would be really thin and you know you're close to the the underworld here it's like they're kind of scaring off these mountain spirits that are said to have come down from the mountains and like cause harm in winter months and when you think of like it being the middle ages you know a lot of deaths a lot of sickness and stuff would come in in the winter months um, and we did not have things like vaccination back then so people would be dying more so so you would have these traditions to scare it off and it's funny how that has just still existed throughout Christmas so there's actually a lot of literature also saying that Christmas before the 19th century in Austria was more of a cross between Halloween Mardi Gras and New Year's Eve um, again there was a lot of mummers involved uh, who would go around demanding alcohol from door to door it was a big party and more for adults and that is thought to be kind of where we're getting trick-or-treaters from and it could be one of the earlier iterations of it because it is um again this kind of festivity this whereas Samhain is like end of harvest we're thinking more Christmas is like the more the winter celebration the end of the year coming into spring scaring off the bad ghosts welcoming the good finally another creepy fucking creature of European Christmas tradition is Frau Perchte. And this lovely lady dates back to 1200 and she is often known as the belly slitter. Yes, the belly slitter. And that is because of the trademark punishment she is said to inflict on disobedient or lazy children. She is a figure of Alpine folklore, again, uh, of Austria. And she's kind of known, sometimes she's referenced to as a woman, sometimes she's referenced as a witch. She goes around during the 12 days of Christmas rewarding good children, punishing the bad. Sound familiar? Very like Krampus. One punishment, however, (laughs) is cutting open the stomachs of naughty children and replacing them with stones. 
Historically, she is shown in a lot of wood carvings and it depicts a crone-like character with dipping warty nose who is carrying on her back a basket filled with screaming children who all apparently are girls. So by the 15th century, a tradition involving costumed processions or appearances of these figures had evolved. So kind of like that Krampus um, parade that we were talking about just previously. And the very first illustrations we have of Persia seem to show not the figure herself, but in fact a masker impersonating Pursed with the iron nose and that's in quotations. So the beak-like nose of the Pursta may be related to the figure's ancient connection to the classical Strix which appears in both Greek and in Latin texts. The Strix bird is an ill omen often thought of as an owl, one that visited humans at night to feed on blood and flesh. In addition to Pursta threatening to cut open the bellies of the disobedient, she sometimes said to stamp on those to offend her. But one way to avoid the Pursta's wrath was to prepare certain foods, particularly a porridge called Milch, which would be partially consumed by the family on the 12th night of Christmas, and they would leave a portion set aside as an offering to the Pursta. Um, so that's kind of interesting what I started to think about that like how we leave an offering for Santa um, like what you would leave out for Santa at night time we would always leave him like I mean I think everyone kind of leaves a carrot for Rudolph we would leave a Guinness for Santa and some biscuits or some mince pies it was also said that some families would leave out cert- uh, some of the porridge for the nice traveling spirits that would um, travel with Persia so Persia was also said to like bring spirits with her and they were the children that she had taken um so you would also like leave up an offering for them so that you wouldn't become across any any more belly slitting in your day uh so the dead who accompany Persta and consume these offerings are in many tales called heimschmen and they're the spirits of the children who have not received baptism as well so i think as you see this folklore coming in towards um the 15th 16th and 17th century you kind of get that Christianity in the mix there, if you know what I mean. Like they start to talk about non-baptized children, et cetera, et cetera. But you can actually look back on it in a very like traditional folkloric sense of, you know, these um, scary figures that probably did help children to behave well, but also, you know, leaving up offerings for things for like um, a positive year ahead wouldn't have been very unusual back in those times, especially in like, if you look at more like pagan religions and stuff like that. It is really funny, isn't it, when you look at, like, how long not only parents have been, like, bribing their children for good behaviour at Christmas time, but the lengths at which we will do so, (laughs) like, absolutely terrified. And it made me think, like, I'd love to know what were you threatened with as a kid at Christmas? Like, what were the the threats? My mom, and now I'm like, oh my God, is this something to do with the bird thing? Let me know if anyone else had this experience. My mother would tell me that Santa had birdies and that like the birds were everywhere and they were like picking up and like spying on our behavior. But she could also communicate with the birds. So like whenever we were like bold, she was like, I'm going to tell Santa's birds or she'd be like, Santa's birds are outside. And we would be fucking terrified. Like, although I kind of knew that it sounded a bit fishy. Like, as I said, I said on Adam's podcast, like I was a Santa truther up until a very embarrassing age. Like I was completely convinced that Santa was true and like 
any kid that came in being like, I find out Santa's fake. I was like, ha ha ha, Christmas is about to get shit for you, babe. Um, but even the birdie story was a bit far-fetched for me. I was like, Santa has birds? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, how does he have elves and birds? And my mom would kind of be like, the birds are the elves kind of thing, you know? But I would definitely would have uh, behaved even better if I thought there was someone called the fucking belly slitter who was going to come and cut me open and replace my stomach with a stone. No, thank you. <laughs> so let me know what stories like what especially I'd love to know some specifically Irish ones like was there anything that you were scared by or anything that you were bribed with as a child to behave well so that you would get Santa's presence and not a belly slitting and finally moving away from folklore and moving away from true crime it's another kind of red room topic if I'm honest um we're gonna look at like modern day capitalism how we express uh, Christmas now I keep nearly saying Christianity when I'm saying Christmas which I guess is the vibe I guess that's the point should I say but we're going to look at how two big corporations shaped modern day Christmas um, both for us and for cultures not quite like ours so I think everyone has heard the urban myth that Coca-Cola owns the right to Santa or that they turned Santa from green to red. Someone did write um, on our live la- our last live stream, she was like, oh, you should talk about how like Coca-Cola made Christmas red, basically. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But apparently it's all an urban myth. However, we'll get on to it. There is a lot of truth to it. So Coca-Cola have since come out and been like, we don't own the rights to Santa, nothing of the sort. Um, however, in history... Santa Claus, obviously, who was Saint Nicholas, originally was, again, a kind of German figure. People would leave their shoes outside their door because um, Saint Nicholas was a bishop. He was known as a very charitable bishop who would often give money to the poor. And you would leave your shoes outside your door in the hopes that Saint Nicholas would leave some money in your shoe. In uh, Victorian times, Santa was often depicted wearing, like, all sorts of clothes. So he was shown wearing red, white, blue, brown, obviously green as well. An artist called Thomas Nast, who was a German-born American caricaturist, he is kind of known as the father of the American cartoon and also someone who popularized a certain depiction of Santa Claus. He was the first person to actually draw and characterize St. Nicholas as wearing a red robe. And the reason he did so was that bishops were just known to wear red robes. So it wasn't really Coca-Cola in that sense, but it does have a trickle-down effect. He um, started to illustrate Santa Claus in Harper's Weekly. That's who he worked for. And he published. they published uh, Nasta's drawings of Santa for 20 years. So it really did become like iconography. Um, when you think of Santa Claus, you can Google again. Actually, I'll post, I'll post a good few pictures to go along with this. It is quite similar to what we would think of as Santa. He was wearing red. He held a pipe. But oftentimes people would say that he looked almost a little bit more sinister. Like, not the Santa that we would really know today as this, like, loving, warm, jolly big man. But he did have a lot of the characteristics. He had a big belly. He wore red and white robes and he often had gifts and a pipe with him. 
1923, Coca-Cola first used Santa on their advertisements, but he seemed, again, to be a little bit more like Thomas Nast depictions. In 1931, Coca-Cola commissioned an artist called Haddon Sundblom to do their new Christmas advertorial. And he made, he based it off Nast's depiction of Santa Claus, which had become, as I said, iconography. However, he switched some things. He switched the pipe that Santa would hold to a glass bottle of Coca-Cola. And he also was the one who really popularized Santa as this jovial, welcome, rotund, smiling, friendly old man with smile lines around his eyes, flushed cheeks, and kind of almost you can hear him when you look at the painting you will hear him be like oh 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 like it, it just it recalls that in your mind the ad was actually so popular that coca-cola commissioned him to paint santa every single year up until the 1960s Sandblom actually used his neighbour as a live model. His friend and neighbour was called Lou Prentice. And he was the one who he used. He based off Santa for years and years and years until he died. Then he went on to paint from himself standing in a mirror. And this actually like bit him in the ass one year because he was painting Santa, but in the mirror reflection and people are already used to Santa like so much, they noticed that his belt was backwards. There was other discrepancies also. Um, one year he forgot to include Santa's ring and apparently this caused uproar. People were wondering where the fuck Mrs. Claus were. The paintings are in a real like classic American realism style and they're also quite like historically interesting because they're a testament to the times like you've everything from Santa going through World War II wishing luck for the forces all the way up to um, a really interesting one in 1964 where Santa has like new technology and he's showing this like flying helicopter toy to children. So it is an interesting one there and there's a Coca-Cola museum and they actually have a load of his original paintings there all categorized together. So although Coca-Cola definitely didn't invent Santa as the red Santa that we know, they did kind of take advantage, I guess, of Thomas Nast's depiction of Santa Claus wearing red, using it as the Coca-Cola red, and then they kind of just almost accidentally got such an iconic depiction of Santa Claus that resonated so much with America with the American culture that that has then just spread far and wide and then obviously it culminated in like the 1990s where they had their really famous Christmas ad and that just spawned off a whole other genre of advertisements um so they didn't invent it but they did popularize it and it is just synonymous with Coca-Cola So another corporation mass conglomerate that has taken advantage of Maybe a culture's lack of of uh, Christmas traditions would be KFC. I know, sounds unusual, but KFC in Japan is known as like the quintessential Christmas meal. Every single year, there are queues from like, I think from the 23rd all the way up to Christmas Day of people like ordering and buying these party buckets of fried chicken and cake and lasagna and corn and basically everything that you can think of that you get in like a fucking delicious KFC meal. Every year since the mid-1980s, life-size Colonel Sanders statues dressed as Santa during the holiday have welcomed droves of locals and tourists across the country. According to figures released by KFC, Japan pulls in 6.9 billion yen, which is around 60 million dollars, from December 20th to 25th. And the highest number ever was apparently in 2019. They even surpassed that number. How the hell did this happen though? (laughs) 
Like, how did a country like Japan end up eating fucking KFC on Christmas Day? Something that, like, I think, you know, in more Western traditions, we would consider almost a bit grim, like eating, like, fast food on Christmas Day wouldn't be, like, you know, we would always think of, like, a lovely home-cooked meal. So following the period of austerity, which followed World War II, the 1940s and 50s in Japan saw the economy just taking off completely. Ted Bester, who is a professor of social anthropology at Harvard University, has actually studied Japanese food and culture for 50 years. And he says that Japan's economic power was going through the roof. People had the cash to indulge in consumer culture for the first time. And since the US was a cultural powerhouse at the time, there was a huge interest in Western fashion, food, trips overseas. Japan was kind of just like, eating it up and opening it up as well to the idea of Americanism because obviously during World War II they were at odds with each other and that is something that you do see all the way up now in a lot of Asian countries especially in um, China it's a big thing as well this kind of glamorization of western culture specifically American culture in Tokyo in the 1970s, all of a sudden, loads of fast food chains began popping up all over Tokyo, like Baskin Robbins, Mr. Donut, the Pancake House, uh, Cheesecake Factory. They all exist in Tokyo. And there's actually a really good show on at the moment um, on Netflix. And it's, what's your man's name from the Great British Bake Off? Paul Hollywood. He's going around Japan and eating their food. And he talks a lot about this as well. And this kind of where I first piqued my interest. But it's like, you know, for a country that has like the most amount of Michelin, or for a city, should I say, that has the most amount of Michelin star restaurants in the world, it's gas that they have so much fucking fast food as well, specifically real American. And you can see that it's kind of fetishized, you know, that way. So between 1970 and 1980, Japan's fast food industry expanded 600%, which is wild. And KFC was part of the pack. Um, and it opened its first Japan outlet in Nagoya in 1970. So how the hell again? So this is what we know now how KFC and other fast food chains um, became super popular in Japan. But we don't really know yet how it like it became this like part of the the Christmas tradition. So Christmas is actually like a secular holiday in Japan. Only 1% of the population identifies as Christian. They don't have super uh, Christian traditions like we would do. And even, you know, if you're looking at their culture, we spoke earlier about how a lot of old pagan or Celtic traditions from Ireland kind of existed and a lot of it was based around harvesting and the solstice and so we carried on traditions from our old holidays but because Japan is a bit more of a secular country they just didn't have that there they didn't have the foundation of these specifically Christian traditions um, that happen around the times that we would be used to celebrations happening anyway. It was noted that in the 1970s, most families in Japan also just didn't have established Christmas traditions anyway, and that kind of left the door open for KFC to come in. Um, So they launched a marketing campaign in 1974 called Kentucky for Christmas, and this is the first iteration of the party, party buckets that we know now that they get. However, it was a man called Takeshi Okoara who managed the country's first KFC, and he later became CEO of KFC Japan, 
who falsely marketed fried chicken as a traditional American Christmas dinner. And this actually came up in the Paul Hollywood show where he was out eating with um, a Japanese comedian. She was showing him around and she was like, I literally grew up thinking that like Americans at Christmas would sit around having a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. Like it became just like a known thing, which is, it's almost like a Mandela effect, right? But like a purposeful one that was instituted, that was brought in by like a fucking corporation. There's also, there's some conflicting stories though um, that he didn't actually like, you know, falsely advertise it as an American tradition, although people would say otherwise. He also apparently overheard um, expat Americans talking, saying that like, oh, they want to have um, a replacement for their turkey at Christmas, but chicken is the next best thing that you can get there. So apparently he like made a mental note of that. But the advertisement that went along with it was just super effective. So a typical KFC ad from the 70s or 80s would have showcased a family enjoying a luscious feast of fried chicken as the song My Old Kentucky Home played in the background, which is just gas. You can actually Google these ads and you're just, it's so funny seeing something that is just not a tradition being presented as such, but like how else would they know? Like, I mean, I'm sure there's so much shit that we, associate with different parts of the world like Japan or China especially like you know Asian parts of the world like even food that we consider I I also heard once that a lot of the food that we eat here that we consider to be Indian food is Pakistani food but it's just like presented to us as such or a lot of the early Thai food like I remember when I was younger you'd have like Chinese and Thai food and it would just be like usually a Chinese person who would just be like yeah here's a bit of fucking Thai food a bit of Chinese food whatever they don't know the difference and we just eat it up you know that way literally <laughs> so um obviously this became super effective in Japan because up until this day they still do it and a reason why it was uh so easily kind of brought to Japan was because they fried foods and fried chicken is just not something new um they have a food called karaage which is small pieces of panko breaded deep fried meat and fish um which is super popular anyway they obviously have a big tradition of tempura so that that kind of deep fried food wouldn't be a very different um kind of food for them especially like texture and taste wise but also something that's very important in Japanese culture is not only food but like sharing food and that kind of family style meal so when you're thinking of a big bucket of chicken in the middle although to us it might just seem like a takeaway night uh, in Japanese dining culture that kind of shared experience of all sitting around and sharing from one big bowl like even in, if you look at a lot of Asian places would eat have hot pot where you have this big food a uh, big boiling pot of uh, water and spices and meats and noodles in the middle and everyone's kind of taking their own bowls so it's interesting how they adapted some Japanese dining traditions but the fact that they eat KFC on Christmas dinner I mean did I get starving reading this absolutely I fucking did um what a strange tradition though and it's huge it's absolutely massive in Japan So that is all we have time for this week on our very special Christmas edition of Red Room. Um, So don't worry, next week there will be business as usual. There'll be a podcast out on Wednesday. Really excited for it. It's going to be a big one. So I'm starting a three-part series on a deep dive into the Church of Scientology. One of the episodes will be public, but two of the episodes are going to be exclusive to Patreon. The first installment of that is going to be coming next week. Um, So I'm busy working around that because there is a fucking lot there is a lot to talk about and I want to make sure it's really entertaining for you guys it'll probably be a long one as I said which I think is perfect
perfect for those weird days in between Christmas and New Year's where you don't really know what day it is. Um, I'm going to be taking some of next week off, but I'm I will come back next week for a live stream. I know I wanted to try get it done actually the previous week, but it just didn't work out that way. So I'm going to probably probably come back. I think maybe Thursday could be a good day to do it. But like obviously now that we're not in a lockdown lockdown, but we're in a kind of fucking semi lockdown, I don't think a lot of people are going to have like major plans for uh, for New Year's, especially if you like escaped COVID. Like I feel like everyone is dropping like flies. I mean, I'm recording this still uh, a little bit before Christmas. so I'm just like f- crossing my fucking fingers that I don't get bloody COVID for Christmas Day. If it happens after it, so be it. But I'm really crossing my fingers. Hope anyone who did catch, unfortunately, catch the fucking virus. I hope you're feeling okay. Hopefully some of the content can keep you company. Um, And anyone who escaped it, I hope you're having a great time with your friends and your family. Thanks to everyone who signed up for this month again. And as I said, content will be going as usual to keep you entertained next week. See you later and I'll talk to you all then. <laughs>